This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Tzfarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Six o'clock, 40 minutes. You got my That's fine, I have to go back. They may probably do diamond at this point. Excuse me. I know, I know. But, uh, I actually met him at the hospital. Uh, well, and I stayed by him for many, many years and heard a tremendous amount of stories from my Rebbe. Uh, those of you that are in my shiurim, you know that I try to pass on that, uh, that style of telling stories. One name that was a constant refrain, I'm not sure if the Rosh knows this, but one name that was a constant refrain over the eight years was Rebbe Lapiansky. And uh, how much Rosh was always hoping that Rebbe Lapiansky would come over to our yeshiva. And he missed his good friend. Uh, Rebbe Lapiansky is considered today one of the foremost Rosh Hashiva in America, certainly a, a name that I grew up with, and it's a tremendous source to have him here in Yeshiva. It's just, uh, as I tried to explain to you guys today, to have somebody who's a, 
a brother-in-law to the Rashiva from Mir's a friend of the Bracha, the son-in-law to Rabbeinu Shvinkel, we're talking about Gedolim. When I was brought up, we learned that Gedolim are not just, a, they're not just people better than us, but they're a different species. And we're privileged to have with us a Gadol Batara today, so please, we're privileged to have a Gadol actually have a Kesha with the Yeshiva here. I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Mubaseret. Um, we have a Talmud. We've had over the years a few Talmudim, but somebody who today is a Rebbe and an extraordinarily big mashpia in Yeshiva, somebody who's major intellect and bardas, and his name is Yeritzuk Sher, who's been with us well over 10 years. And has really, has really become a, dam, a big figure in the yeshiva. And he was from Vaseret and a few others, David Leipnik and so on. So it's something that I feel kind of a little bit of a, of a debt of gratitude in Bez Hashem. And I'm sure many more told me that we'll go along the same path and get that chashivas in learning and in depth of thinking and so on. I wanted to speak a little bit about Mishpatim, um, something to understand the connection of Torah and Mishpatim. It's sort of given us two elements. There's a ve'ela and an ela. It should be a part. It's one and the same. Well, is it Torah? Is it not Torah? How does that differ? I mean, it's all halachas. It's all shabarah. What, what, how do we understand the relationship of what's referred to as Torah and referred to as Mishpatim? I want to start with a problem that sort of bothers us. The... Um, we know that the main thing is to do what's right. There's an expression that the Rishonim use a lot of times, and it's taken from actually secular philosophers. It's Kabbalah If something is right, regardless of who the author is, it's right. Whoever said it doesn't make a difference. A statement needs to stand on its own. So we have a Rashi here, and it's a halach actually. It says, So Rashi says, You can't bring a case to a Goyesha judge. Why? So the obvious reason is because they pass it wrong. They don't, they, don't, um, they don't know what's right and you're messing things up. But it doesn't say that. It says, Even if you know that in this particular area of law, it's identical to the law to the Torah. Still, don't bring it to the, to, to the courts. And it makes the, the, the Avodah look better. So I don't understand if the Avodah got it right. If, if, the, if, the, if the Buddhist judge or the Mormon judge or the Christian judge or the atheist judge paskins the halacha correctly and you go, you have a dintor with somebody else and you bring it there and he will tell you what's right. So, so why should we acknowledge? And um, we acknowledge Chachma by the Goyim. What's the problem of acknowledging it? Right is right and if somebody said it, give him the credit for it. So, what's, so this whole Mishpatim is there's an emphasis here on bringing it to a Jewish court because it's a Kiddush Hashem and a Goyish called a Chil Hashem even though they are Emes 
They're telling you the truth. They're telling you that you owe him X amount and he owes you X amount, and that's right. So to understand a little bit the world of Mishpatim as opposed to Torah, I want to first point out something that recurs two or three times a phrase um, that's used in contrasting Torah Mishpatim that sort of arouses some curiosity. It says, the Medrash says over here, that's in Yisrael, that on the third day when it was morning, the, the, the um, Kabbalah Zator began. So the Medrash says, that Boker is the time when Torah was given, and Arab is the time when Mishpat was given. Morning was for Torah, and, and Mishpat was at night. Thank you very much. The, um, now the question is, first of all, what does it mean Torah is given in the morning and Mishpatim is given at night? I mean, Mishpatim is Shoharach. I mean, pick up Shoharach. Part of it, one, one quarter deals with, with the halachas of the daily life and one quarter deals with Mishpatim. What does it mean Torah was given in the morning and Mishpatim is given at night? And we also understand this day-night split is not... It's not the way we understand day and night. It's not, you know, Moshe wasn't a night owl or a morning person. And that's why we gave the more important stuff in the morning. And at night when he was tired, we let him do Mishpatim or vice versa. He wasn't staying in Yeshiva in the morning and going to law school at night. It wasn't, well, what does it mean the morning and the night? That Chazal used these metaphors to bring out a point. And to reinforce the fact that Boker and Erev are significant, Chazal say, that koladon din emes lamito. If somebody judges a din the way it's supposed to be judged, so it says he's nasa shutav lamaisabrachis. He becomes a partner to creation. Why? Because in Yisro it says lama oimid oimid lama haam oimid lechem maboke at haaref. Why is everybody standing over here from morning till night? And in Precious it says, so, so once again, you see Chazal picked up on the book of Erev. It's not, I mean, it doesn't ring at first sound. It doesn't ring terribly, terribly significant. This is Boker Erev, this is Boker Erev. So what? What's, what does it mean? He becomes a part of my salvation. Because here it says Boker Erev, and here it says Boker Erev. And, but it's the same Boker Erev of Torah Mishpatim. You see there's a significance of Boker Erev in Torah Mishpatim, and you see um, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he judged the people, he was there in a bokara Erev, and when somebody is damned in Emes Lamito, he's not such a my salvation, because you also have Boker and Erev. What, what is, what's this Boker and Erev piece over here? So let's start with a Chazal, that beginning of Mishpatim, that explained the connection. I wouldn't say explain as much as sort of give us parameters, and we'll try to understand it. It says that a muscle of why you have Yisro followed by Mishpatim and preceded by Mara, where some of the mitzvahs were given. So Chazal use a very peculiar muscle. They say just like when a king goes, there's an advanced guard and there's a rear entourage, so too Torah, when Torah goes, it has an advance guard, and it has an entourage in the back. So Torah is in the middle, Yisro. You have Mishpatim that's going 
ahead of it, so to speak, or behind it, whichever way you want to do it, and Mara's back. Good, it's a, it's a, nice, it's a nice picture, but how are Mishpatim the entourage to Taira and Nakash We need one before and one after. So I would like to understand the following <coughs> points. Let's ask ourselves in the search for right and wrong, and for to ask ourselves how do we know what's right and what's wrong? How do we determine? How do we describe right and wrong? There are two mahalchim. Um, there are two ways to go about it. One is, what does our seichel tell us? What, what do we think? And the second one is, what's revealed to us? What did our Kaddish Baruch Hu tell us? Both of them are tools, people who are not religious, people who are um, atheists or secular, and use, can only use the mind. People who are religious but don't have the level of Torah that we have and so on, they may look for the revealed word, but there's no seichel in the process. But those are the two basic tools between um, the, the identifying right and wrong. How does the Torah understand the relationship? You can ask ourselves if we can understand it and figure it out, and it's something we would be very, very insulted if somebody told us, you don't know right from wrong. I think every person would feel very, very upset. You, our reaction would be, I may not always do what's right, but I sure know what's right. And so, so where's the place for the Torah? And, and if Torah is everything, then where's the place for the Seichel? What's the relationship between the two? What's the relationship between Das and Seichel and Torah? <coughs> So let's understand the difference between the two and why one is superior and yet we need both. The seichel and, and what we call our conscience, what we call our ability to figure things out, is slow picking. And we can, philosophers have sat on issues of right and wrong for thousands of years. We have some great ideas. We, we, we don't have a clear picture at all. We believe that many things that were said have merit. Some things are extremely right. But to say that it's, it's a light, to say that it's something that it's clear, clarity it's not. If you, I mean, if, if Washington is a town of lawyers, and, and for the right price they can prove anything is right. It's not a question of... No, nobody has ever definitively proven anything. Um, and you know that. So at best, it's very unclear. It's murky. You have outlines. You have some sense of it. That's the Seha Kajbok gave us. I would say it's like a blind man with a stick. He can do somewhat of a job, sometimes a better job. That's all you can do. But a Baruch Hu doesn't step into the picture until that hasn't been done. By Avram Avinu, it says, Avram Avinu asked the right questions, and he figured out things, and he had all the problems set right. And when that happened, that's when Akadosh Baruch Hu, so to speak, poked his head out and said, it's me that you're talking about. 
The mushal is somebody was standing, somebody came in a clearing, Chazal gave this mushal, and there was a house, there was a palace that was lit up, and nobody there. And the person says, it can't be that there is a middle of no place, there's a house <coughs> so well uh, um, furnished, it's so well attended to, it's so lit up, and there's no balabayas. It can't be. Hits it so Kaddish Baruch Hu looked out and said, Anihu Balabir. Yes, it's me you're talking about. So Chazal are teaching us, if we don't search for it using our stick, the light will not come on. Kaddish Baruch Hu is not going to dump tire on us. It's going to come when we've used our seichel and our das to get to that point. But that's half the picture. The other half of the picture is we weren't given the revelation for it to stay as a bright light and that's it. That's not where that's not where it's happening. Baruch who meant for us to take a, a, to take a stick, light it up, and climb down and light up the rest of the way. The world is still a place of a multitude of issues and darkness that we're now expected to use it and to judge by it. In other words, until we don't have the Torah, we don't have a yardstick how to measure right and wrong. Because what we think is the yardstick that we have becomes very flexible. Um, I used to teach in Isha Torah for a few years, many years ago, and in one of their, in, in one of the uh, tricks they used to use kind of in their Kirov type of seminars, went as follows. The lecturer would be talking about X, and then he would ask the people, by the way, morally, let's say somebody's married to a woman, and it's a nice marriage, nice, plain, fine, no problems. <coughs> And then he meets a woman who's much more attractive and believes he's going to have a much better time with her and he's going to be much happier. Is it right to divorce the wife? And the way the speaker flavors the story, most people come around to the idea that, you know, it's a shame and it's, and it's really, really heartbreaking, but at the end of the day, it's the most important thing is to be as happy as you can and the right thing would be to let go and to, and to marry this other woman. Then, 25 minutes later, he drops an anecdote about he was sitting on the plane and in front of him was a, a, a very respectable surgeon. Next to him was a young woman, uh, you know, 20-something. And he was obviously married, had a ring and everything. And he was flirting with her and really acting kind of, uh, you know, consensually. But it was, it was uh, really... And once again... and the way the story sort of gets flavored, people say, oh, that's terrible, that's ugly, it's horrible, and so on and so forth. And he says, by the way, if being happy is so important, what's the problem? And then people begin to stammer and go back and forth, and, and they become lamdonim with all the chilukim to try to work out why they felt this was right, this was wrong. <coughs> the answer is, because who is to say what's right and what's wrong? I mean, I say this way, you say this way, what's the standard of measuring that? There's no light because there's no standard that we have. Standard of what? That everyone else does, basically. That everyone else thinks. 
Uh, you know, in, in America, you're stranger feet with sticks, and in China, you're stranger feet with forks. In some places, you're stranger if you marry one woman instead of four. In some places, it's stranger if you marry four women. Who's to say what's right and what's wrong? There's no light. There's no standard. So the next step is to, to take, finally, you have something that has absolute value. That's emis. And now, you, it's, then the, the, the next part of the job is to go down the mountain and to start looking at things and, and being able to put things in their place using that light. That's the muscle, that's the metaphor that Chazal give of a king going with an entourage before, entourage after. The job of the entourage bef- ahead of him, the advanced people, is to say, Rabbi Isai, they're to pave the way. The king is coming. Clean up the village, put on your pass. It's, you, 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 you know, get ready for something. It's, it's, in other words, the bridge from where the people are to the king. The detail that the king leaves behind, his job is to see, well, the king put, some, put down laws. The king put down certain um, parameters for conduct that they be implemented. The job, the king does not just a tourist visiting the villages. The king is there to try and to make order and, 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 and put a certain stamp on it. So, so you have a detail that goes before him to get you there, to, to, to tell you how it's appropriate to greet a king and what needs to be done and so on. And then you have something left behind which sort of tells you what to do, what to do now with the village when the king's gone. Mishpatim is the part of Torah that deals with taking the mundane and putting it up against the Kodesh. It has two tachlis. One is to sit and to think to get to revelation so that a person sits and thinks and asks himself, do I really believe that the life I'm leading has any meaning to it? Do I really believe that, that, that I'm a good person? It, you know, I see so many rough edges and so many points that I think I'm driven by nothing but just getting a, a little bit of pleasure here and there. And as a person thinks, and that's sort of a mundane thing with your mind, you begin to say to yourself, there must be something more. And that is towards Matan Torah. When a person is Zohar to Matan Torah, the next step is go back to life and now use that and, and see everything in its light. <coughs> That's the lesson of Chazal. That's the metaphor of Boker Ara Erev. The word Erev means evening, but it also comes, as Menezer says, from the lesson of Irbuvia, meaning things that are, that are melted together, things that are mixed together. As it becomes evening, things lose their distinct shape, and they begin to become blurred one into the other. The, the, the outlines sort of meld in each other, and, 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 you, and you can't make out things. Erev is the part of the world that is not illuminated by anything that's divine. Boker, the word boker, as it says, comes from the word bikores, which means critique. Critique in the sense of sharp outlines that give things resolution. And you can and you can and can get the sharp sense of what things are. So mishpatim and Torah are boker and erev. They're boker and erev in the sense that in the morning you learn Torah, which means clear revelation of God, 
And in the evening, you take it and apply it to things that are not so clear. It's not so clear where you're supposed to go with it, what are you supposed to do with it, and so on. The world of Mishpatim is. What's the world of Mishpat? Why is Mishpat distinct from Torah? Torah is, this is what Hashem said. Hashem said that in this, in this case, he gets it. In this, in this case, he gets it. In this case, it's Gzela. In this case, it's Geneva. Those are things that are, those are things that, that are Torah. Mishpatim, like a Din Torah, that's a type of thing which is something that a person sits and two people have a business deal. And the business deal went sour. So-and-so invested it. And the guy promised himself such a return. And he, he lost his money. And this person says it was an accident. This person says you, you invested it wrong. This person says you cheated me. So I have to sit there and make sense out of it. There's a big tangled mess here of real life situation. And what do I do with it? So I take a light, I take the Shohara, I take Torah, and I say, let's try and shed some light on it and get a sense of what these pieces are. Where's his, where's mine, what did he promise him, what did he give, what didn't he give, and so on. I'm using a certain standard, and that standard is the standard of Or, and we apply it. So the entire Mishpatim was given in Erev, because that's the time for Mishpat. Mishpat is the part, the extension of Torah, where the Seichel uses the standards and applies it. And, and, and Boker is when Torah is given. The, um, I want to go back to the first point we made. Why is it so important to go to it in Torah? And why is it... That, that, that if you go to it, even if they pass the same thing. So, so let's explain the point of it, because this is a very important point that goes to the core of what Torah is about. Imagine two people come to me, and they're arguing about the business deal. The business deal went sour, and there's always tons and tons of arguments. The truth is, if the business deal goes good, there's always arguments because everybody wants more of their share. The, the people argue on all, on all cases. So a business deal comes up. There are two issues. One is who owns what and who should get what. That's one issue. The second issue is who said so? Who said so? Secular law is based on the following idea. Let's make a system that's workable and reasonable, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that, but it never can do more than that. It all at the end of the day, what are you basing it at? So it's it, listen. It's a, it's smart and it's fair that people who've had um, that people who are smart figure out a system that that will help commerce move along and do well. So there's nothing wrong with it. But what I'm saying in effect is there's nothing more morally right than common sense. And common sense is not right. Common sense is just common sense for things that are workable. That's all it is. When a person comes along and, and, and they are a Christian court, I, I'm talking about a Christian court meaning real, really Christian, not Christians after being a secular court, but a Christian court, what you're saying is, by the Lord J, this is what J would do in this case. 
And that's right. Right is what Jay would do. That's 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 that means in a certain sense you're being over about Azura fully. Because that's what he's applying. He's applying the emis as Jay would have applied it, and that's what it is. When a person goes to the Torah, so so he, what he's saying is, this is right because the Torah said it's right. That's right. That's a standard of right. That's absolute. And we apply this to that. Just like if a person if a person manufactures rulers or measuring tapes, how do I know what 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 a um, what a measuring tape is? How do I know what's a yard? What's a foot? What's an inch? I mean, what happens if two measuring tapes argue? I need to have a standard to apply it to. And if I don't have a standard, it, 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 it's, I mean, so who said this is my inch? Is it my inch? Someone told me I had a neighbor who was actually a Satmar Jew who became identified with the Medina um, at the, at the, and he actually was, he, he actually had a, um, a command of, of, of a part in Yishalayim in the, during the war. He just passed away a few months ago, maybe, a month or two ago. Very fine person. And he told me that he once had a unit of Chassidah Shehidin. Terrible, terrible unit. And he <coughs> said, you know, Yashar, straight. And, you know, straight, uh, you know, one person bent over, one person pot sticking out, you know, it was, it was a little... So he tells one guy, you know, stand straight. So the guy said, this is my straight. Like, who's to say that? Who do you think is straight? I think what I think is straight. You know, we, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm following commands, but the interpretation of straight is a little different. He said, this is my yashar. In a certain sense, the, the, the you always need to ask, besides what has the court ruled, by what have you ruled? And that's really it. If you want to take a look... The pasuk that the Chazal bring, why you should go to a court, is <coughs> that our God is not like their God. Or their God is like our God. The word sur, to use as a name of God, Devanezer says, the word sur is like bedrock. When you build a building, the first thing you need to do is to identify your bedrock. What's the building going to stand on? If it's loose soil, it's not going to stand on it. You need to dig down till you get to a piece that's rocky or very, very dense. It can hold weight. And then you build up pillars and extend it or different techniques. But the yesod is always a tsur. A tsur is God in the sense of the bedrock on which other things stand. <coughs> so when you're passing a law, when you're trying to implement a certain moral right, the question is, what's the tzur that it's standing on? And if you go to a non-Jewish court, then you are doing um, what is you, 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 the bedrock. So, so you might be doing the right thing, quote-unquote. You might be doing the wrong thing, quote-unquote. But the name of the God that it's resting on is, is, is about Zerah. When you go to a bezdin, it's resting on bedrock. And that's the surah. <coughs> I want to apply a little bit this, this point to, 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 to our lives. Baruch Hashem, I'm not, we're not going to talk about the Torahs. Um, you know, God help, none of you ever have to go through any cases and courts and Torahs. I don't think that that's a relevant topic. But I'd like to speak about 
Um, what are we doing here in Yeshiva? Where are we going to? What are we aiming for? And how do we continue with it? When we start the process of going to a Yeshiva, learning Torah, like I said before, I don't think anyone would say that he doesn't know right from wrong. And everybody would say, I know what's right, and I just... The real question is, but you know it the muddled kind of way, with no real understanding of where it came from, what it is, and what's right. A yeshiva is a place where even if you don't take away anything more than a yardstick of right, that is what you're looking for. The Maimon Har Sinai that we're looking for is a certain boker, a certain morning of life where you say, oh, this is right. Let's take an example. In America today, what we call Kedusha doesn't exist. It's not a value. I mean, an adult can do anything he pleases as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. There is nothing wrong with something that doesn't hurt anybody. So a big part of what the Torah looks on very, very severely um, doesn't exist. We don't have, we don't have any way to... We, we don't have bedrock fit. We, we're brought up hurting other people. Even America has a certain bedrock of you know, being nice and kind. And, and, and yes, in, in many ways, it, it, I mean, it's a, it's a good bedrock. Not Torah, but it's, a, it's a reasonable. But everything else, Torah has much more. And anything that... There's no recognition of wrong in terms of self-discipline, in terms of Kedusha, in terms of many other things. And we come to Yeshiva, and at least we recognize that if there's a yardstick by which we can measure right and wrong, it's not going to be what we think or what we want or, or what's good for us at a particular moment. We're going to, we're going to acknowledge that even if we're wrong, we don't bend the ruler. I once heard um, from Rabbi Yaakov Weibergen, the Shiva of Ner Yisrael, he was, um, he was describing why we don't have prophecy today and why you can't build halachas with prophecy. So he, so he said that when he was a Bachan Yeshiva, it was in the 1940s, he was learning Heimelin, and Seder ended at 10 o'clock at night. But there was a problem. President Roosevelt was going to give a very, very important address to the nation. He used to have fireside chats and he used to speak on the radio and this was the middle of the war at 9 o'clock at night. So that's a real dilemma. You're not going to leave Seder to hear a guy speaking, to have Roosevelt speaking. You're not going to miss President Roosevelt's speech because of Seder. So how do you deal with it? So, you know, so he came up with the solution that would solve it. He said he made daylight savings time for that night in the yeshiva, moved the clock up to one hour ahead, Seder ended at 10 o'clock, the president spoke 9 o'clock, they didn't miss Seder, they didn't miss the president's speech. Um, it was a true story. <laughs> he got it on the head. I mean, his Rosh Hashiva told him that changing the clock in the yeshiva is a by far worse than missing Seder. Because when you miss Seder, you know you did something wrong. When you change the clock, you have no yardstick left to tell you right and wrong. You can, you can make chakras that you can have Vasikin every day. The sun might be up in the middle of the sky, but it's Vasikin if you move the clock the right way. 
there's a certain um, you're damaging, you're undermining a lot more when you cut out. It's something that's very relevant in Kirov, um, the conservative movement um, and the reform movement for sure. Try to help people make things easier by changing the Torah. It's one thing when you tell somebody, I know it's hard for you to keep Shabbos. Let's start with X, even though you drive to the Shul on Shabbos. That's curious. But if you tell somebody the Torah allows you to drive to Shul on Shabbos, that is, that's worse than anything else. Because they're destroying the Torah itself. The other. But when we come to Yeshiva, the thing you want to get by the time you finish your Tkuf in Yeshiva is a clear sense that whether I like it or not, the Shulchan Aruch is the yardstick. There's a light of emis that's the bedrock of everything else I'm going to do. And I need to apply it to everything, whether I like it or not. We tend to deal with things that we know are wrong by obfuscating it. We don't think about it. We kind of muddle it. So when we leave the yeshiva, let's go to the next stage. So you've climbed the mountain, you've gotten there, and you have some enlightenment, and you feel, oh, if, if, you know, vayev, evoke, yomechad. It's, it's, there's something there. Okay, but then you climb down the mountain the other side. What do you do with that light? Well, the job is now to apply it. L- life is dark again. A yeshiva environment is a unique bubble for a small tkufa, a bigger tkufa, a very big tkufa, but at the end of the day, there's real life afterwards, and real life, I mean real issues, real challenges. And do I take it with me and use it? Do, do I honestly ask myself, is it right or is it wrong? And if it's wrong, at least live with a strong sense that I'm doing wrong. And, and at least be misspelled to be able to do right. If you deal with it by obfuscating it, by, by extinguishing the light, or, 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 you know, or sort of disregarding, closing your eyes, then the light did nothing for you. What's the point of having had some exposure to what emis is if, if we don't ever apply it when the going gets rough? I mean, it, I, 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 you might think yeshiva life is rough, but in religious sense, the hemshech of it is much rougher. The person has much stronger nisyonos and much less support. What do you do when a whole society of people think something is right? And this is your society, it's your friend, and you know it's wrong. How much are you willing to take that and that light and say, I am not going to say I'm right, wrong, and I'm wrong, right. I, I, and maybe I'm, I, I'm willing to say I'm doing wrong, but at least I know it's wrong. If a person has that attitude and he, and he keeps that and preserves that light, eventually, if people know they're doing wrong and they don't allow themselves the luxury of forgetting it, they'll, they'll do right. And, and it's, it's, it's a tremendous, this year in yeshiva, these years in yeshiva, are extraordinary moments in life. It took us 20 years, 18 years to get here, till we're mature enough. It's, it's like the, it's, it's, it's the era before the boker, to get to a point where we're mature enough to think about things, to, to, to mull over things, to get some tools to be able to determine right and wrong. And then there's a whole life ahead of us where we have to use it. And Kashbarsha help us that we should get in a, in a, as much of the ore as possible from the yeshiva and be mispalled that the ore doesn't get extinguished from afterwards. The point is, if the mishpatim come afterwards, if the application of the Torah comes to mundane, to real mundane life, 
Then we, then we have what the Torah wanted. The king didn't come to visit. We didn't get a year or two of this just for the, for the heck of it, for the fun of it. We got it so that we have something to take with us. And we, should, we should be able to get what can be got from Yeshiva B'Shleimus, and we should be able to carry it further from our Boka to Erev, from our Erev to Boka. And if a person is done din emes lamito, if a person applies the emes the way it should be applied to the real world, as excruciating and as painful as it might be, he becomes a shutif to my sabrashis. Because my sabrashis is a Kaddish taking divine ideals and putting the world down where we, we are the ones that have to implement them. And if a person implements them with emes, then a person becomes a partner to Kaddish Baruch Hu's What's left? <laughs> Thank you.